welcome to the Evolving Enterprises podcast, stories of growth and transformation. Today we're continuing our journey of formulating strategy. And so we're going to look at um, what it takes to protect a company. What does it take to make sure that your company is going to thrive in the future? We talked in an earlier podcast uh, about a question that I was asked by a new CEO. And that was, what, what do you do? What, what would you do in my position? It's always quite an interesting question to ask, answer because you don't know all the facts of you know being in that person's position. But my answer was very much around making the most of opportunity and minimizing risk where you possibly can. So we naturally think about minimizing risk. Any senior leader goes through our risk register and makes sure that you know they're not exposed to sort of risks that they aren't managing. But protecting a company is about much more than that. It's about um, not only making sure that you've done the good checks on a risk register, that you have sort of taken advantage of, of every possible opportunity that you possibly can for the, the benefit of the company, but it's also about really being open to new things, new ways of doing things. M many organizations operate quite a closed system. And by that, I mean that in the past, there has been, for example, you know, money extracted from the company in a particular way. And therefore, the, the, the sort of big organizational, mand you know, sort of, you know, the, the Bible of how you do things in that organization has got a line in it which says, well, only the financial controller can authorize this. Or, you know, recently there have been quite a lot of scams where people have duplicated bank details but modified them a little bit. So instead of paying an expected payment to, you know, the, the supplier, uh, the money's gone to a fraudster. And so, of course, you know, nowadays companies have modified their ways of working by saying, well, you won't pay anything over a certain sum without phoning up that supplier on the number that you've already got and to make sure that you, you know, agree the bank account details before you pay anything. So we, we plug the holes, you know, we, the, the, the ship develops a little bit of a hole, you go and you put a plaster over that hole and another plaster goes over and that sort of set of plasters is known as the rule book for the organisation and it's quite good at keeping the organisation plugged from the dangers that it's been exposed to before. What you don't very often do is take things out of that rule book. So, you know, if in the 1970s some money was stolen by, I don't know, whatever means, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be removed from the rule book. So the rule book gets ever thicker um, and, and ever more difficult to navigate. And yet the threats out there are things that are never, um, you know, included in a company risk register. A very clever friend of mine talks about risks that are not on a company's risk register. And one of those risks would be being boring. You won't find that on any company risk register. But if you're a boring company, it's very difficult to gain clients. It's very difficult for you to go and find staff that are the best staff in the world, that are leading edge people, because you've got a boring organization. And so you're kind of stuck with this, this sort of, you know, this, this label of being boring, even if you don't want to be. You know, if, you, if you've sort of gone for a very boring office block and the people in there hardly speak, then, you know, it's, uh, you know you're naturally going to have that issue. And people who aren't boring, will say, this isn't the culture I want to work in. So you've got to change a culture. Cultures live through behaviours. How do you change behaviours? Well, you get people to do things differently and you reward it. So trying to avoid a culture of being boring is, is massively important. Trying to get away from that sort of, you know, we do things by this rule book and only by the rule book. That's a way of, of sort of getting people with a certain mindset to work with you. But people who are probably better at negotiating, you know, the issues of tomorrow, not the things that have come to bite you from the past, might do things in a slightly different way.
So what I really want to talk about in protecting an organisation at the moment is a couple of critical areas. Those are the, the setting of direction down into the operation system. So the system which essentially issues the instructions and the system that makes policy. And the two are very, very different. If you're not careful, they can collapse and become one and the same, but they are not. They are very different. If I talk about the top of the organisation, so normally I'm referring to the company board here, but it may be a sub board if it's a very large multinational. But the role of a company board, if you go back to the way that Stafford Beer specified the viable system model, to make a system viable, the top of the shop must do three things. One of those is represent the organisation, and most boards do that you know, perfectly well. The next part of it is about choosing a future. So you choose between the future in terms of are we reacting to the threats and the opportunities, etc.? And are we only doing that? Are we dealing with the day-to-day -day issues or are we doing a bit of both? And of course, we need to do a bit of both. But we certainly shouldn't be doing just one or the other. If you're thinking too much about the future, you tend to run out of money you know, within the week. If you're thinking too much about the issues of today, depending on what business you're in, you tend to fall over because the, the market moves on and you, know, you don't keep up. So you, it's important to make sure that you're regularly revisiting that and choosing your future between the future-looking system and the issues of the day. The third part, and probably one of the most overlooked parts of the top of the shop, is what Stafford Beer calls the algodonic system. Algodonic means pleasure and pain. And so part of that system is the emergency break. So if you see something coming along, if your company is you know, over-investing in an area, if you think that the risk of, I don't know, the new office in New York or whatever it happens to be is too great, it's time to put the brakes on and say, OK, well, I, I know we've put in you know, $100,000 at the moment to it, but we're going to walk away from it. We're going to leave the office. We're going to do what we're doing elsewhere. We're going to find something cheaper. So the emergency break is a key part of the algodonic system, and it's something that it's important to test in organisations. I'll go on a bit to, to how you test that in a moment or two, but there's, there's another part about the algodonic system that is, is also really important, which is the pleasure system. And the pleasure system is essentially a, a way of finding that which the company is really, really good at and making sure that you do that better each time. So making sure that each time you deliver something, you're, you're looking into the organisation and saying, hey, could we do this? in some different way. Ah, it looks, looks like carbon has, has uh, you know, it's, it's suddenly become, comes to the fore as a, as a material. Maybe we could do that. You know, we could use carbon for our, our, our systems rather than whatever we were using before, aluminium or something. Maybe it would be a better material. How do we do that? And so those walkarounds by the seniors, looking for opportunities, looking for ways of building on the, the core strength of an organisation, those are really, really important. So those three functions, the choosing a future, representing the system, and the algonomic system, are really, really important. So I promised to revisit the algorithmic system in terms of the break. What does that mean? And what about the, you know, the accelerator as well? What about those two elements? How would you know when to hit the break in an organization? Many, many chief executives would say, well, we talk with our, our senior leaders. They, they in turn talk with other people in the organization. Well, that's great. That works really well if your senior leaders are going to fess up to that which is not working very well. If they're going to be honest about how well other things are going, and if they themselves are in four, brilliant. But there's a, a lot of predication in there. There's a lot of assumptions that people are going to do the best thing. And I think one important area that I, I would particularly in, encourage those who are new to senior management to look at is 
what if your people weren't always telling you the truth? And I, and I don't mean that necessarily because they want to lie or want to mislead you, but they themselves may not know the truth. They may be being told the truth by a group of people who are a bit deluded. And, you know, the, the world is full of people who are a bit deluded. You know, if you if you want to know how much it's going to cost to build a house, don't ask an architect, don't ask a builder, because they are themselves slightly deluded. And frankly, it's not worth their while to get into how much it's really going to cost to build your house. Because if they told you it was going to cost a million pounds and you have half a million, well, they're not going to get the contract. But if they tell you that they can put it up for half a million and then after you know, a quarter of a million spent, they tell you it's going to be three quarters of a million. And after half a million spent, they tell you it's going to be the whole million. That's a way of making sure that they continue to have, you know, have work. It has been quite well proven. There's a, a paper by um, a very wise uh, colleague of mine, Jim Moffat, which talks about the conspiracy of optimism. And he didn't mean conspiracy in a, a very negative sort of sense. He meant exactly what I described between builders and architects, that if you want work in the public sector, he was, he was looking at public sector projects. If you want to take on a public sector project, then it's not really in your interest to tell the minister it's going to cost this. You know, it's, it's a billion pounds because that's not what the minister wants to hear. It's not what anybody wants to hear. If, it, if it's going to fit into 100 million pounds, that's fine. You crack on and you do it. So, of course, the contractor isn't going to go and fess up to how much it's really going to cost. Um, and, and people who are um, committed to you know, delivering that system, they aren't going to tell you how much it's going to cost either because their career and their benefits and their, their enhancement is, is determined by, you know, is this contract signed or isn't it? So they're not in a position to tell you. So often it's about really making sure that your your system, your your inputs to that system are really, really well informed. And so in the case of house building, if you want to know how much it's going to cost to build a house, go and ask a quantity surveyor. And what a quantity surveyor will do is to work out bills of quantity. They'll work you out how much concrete you need, how many bricks you need, how much electrical cable you need, how much time you need to install all that. Mm. And they'll go back to the latest prices and say, well, according to our data, it's somewhere between this and this, you know, for each of those, for each uh, activity of labour, each activity of each each um, sort of set of goods. These are the latest figures we've got. Things that can steer it to the left are, you know, quality of the bricks and the quality of the concrete or where you get it from or where you live or whatever it happens to be. Things that steer it to the right are, you know, I don't know, gold, gold plated, whatever it is, and, you know, network cabling, all the other things. So you can get a pretty good idea of you know, what the minimum and maximum is likely to be from somebody who's independent, who has access to the right data, and who is impartial, unbiased, you know, uninterested. They're, they're, they're going to pay whether you buy this or you don't. So quantity surveyors provide you with that really valuable input in terms of how much is it something actually going to cost, if you, if you want to know, that is. <laughs> Self-builders generally don't want to know because it's just, you know, <laughs> you just want it. So in a similar way, in a, an organisation, you... You can get those those inputs, but you have to make sure that your wiring diagram is right. We talked in previous episodes about the the attenuation. So we attenuate data in all sorts of ways. We take averages, we take selective views of different people, we'll uh, have a persona for someone we're trying to sell something to. And all of these are ways of, of sort of reducing down the amount of data and information and evidence that we have to process in our brain. And they're great. The algorithmic system is no different. It's linked up in exactly the same way. You talk to any anyone in senior management anywhere, and they will have their go-to people who they'll they'll you know sort of check in with, and they'll make sure that the organisation's running well because their go-to people will tell them that you know certain things are right. But what if those people aren't necessarily telling you about you know what's working really well and what's not? What if they themselves aren't that well informed? 
what what if they you know are what if they have other interests what if they you know they don't share your passion for something in that case it becomes a little difficult to know you know whether something's really working well or not and so the the wiring of the algorithmic system and i you know i'm, I'm an ultrasound engineer i literally think about the wiring of it mm. how's how does the information pass from source up to an endpoint and how's the decision making made the algorithmic system is really really important and the more that we're able to and make sure that that's firstly wired properly, that you've got those connections in there, that the meetings are being held, that people are being informed in the right way, that also you've you've got a suitable level of challenge into that, that you're not simply going to people who are saying, oh, yes, of course we'll, yeah, we'll do that for, for not very much money, we'll, you know, all that stuff. You, you must be going to a broad range of people who have, you know, different views, some of whom will probably say, oh, it's far too expensive, no, we don't want to invest in that. Great, why? Why is it too expensive? Why don't we want to invest in it? What's the purpose of, of what we're doing? And so, your, your algorithmic system is, is massively important. And you can see examples of that, for example, in the safeguarding system. So for anybody who's involved with schools or with working in sort of, you know, organisations for young people, one of the first things that you get, in fact, probably the first thing that you're going to get is, is a, a briefing on how to keep those you know, children or young people safe. And, you know, it's some fairly you know, standard, sensible things about, you know, keeping them away from danger, keeping people who aren't background checked away from them, making sure that, you know, you've done your planning and that you've got contingency, that you've you've got a way of managing, you know, foreseeable crises that might come up, etc. And and also making sure that if something does come up, that the that the, the child or young person as a way of discussing that and making sure that any issue that they raise is is going to be heard. So, you know, the worst possible outcome in terms of safeguarding would be, uh, you know, a child or young person sort of, you know, maybe uh, coming in with a, an unusual bruise or, you know, being unusually tearful and nobody asking, well, what happened? Mm. Why, why was that? Why are you feeling so sad? You know, come and tell me about it. What, what's, what's, what's happening here? And, and allowing that sort of child or young person to tell their story. That's that's so vital. That's that's the central sort of part of safeguarding. It's it's making sure that the child or young person feels safe, you know, with with the adults around them, knows that they can bring any issues, anything that they're worried about to the adults, and also knows that they're, you know, they'll be listened to and, you know, fully listened to, not simply a oh, well that would never have done that. And that requires on the part of an adult then a mindset of there could be people out there who would be wanting to hurt this child or young person. And, and that's that's a very diff difficult shift. It's like the shift from a CEO of everything is fine in this, this enterprise. You, you've got to have that sort of shift of mindset that it may not be fine. <laughs> or if it isn't fine. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so if you, you say that the way to protect your enterprise is in part to make sure your algorithmic system is wired really well. But it's also to make sure that you are, you know, you've got that mindset of, Anything could happen, really. All sorts of things could go wrong. You know, we, we could be teetering on a financial disaster. I mean, it's, you know, of course, you're not going to wander around your organisation accusingly. You know, don't want, to, don't, don't want your, your, your financial director to, to leave because you're giving him or her hard stares about, you know, where is the money today? But it's, it's about, you know, taking that pragmatic view of, you know, it could happen. I think people could be doing things that aren't great. People could be telling me a whole lot of old stuff that, you know, isn't true. So I need to be able to, to get at different sources. I need to make sure that I'm able to, to deal with, you know, anything that comes up. And, and one of the other things that's really important in thinking about protecting an organisation is, is dealing with creeping risks. So a creeping risk is always difficult because, you know, one day to the next, it's not actually changed all that much. And we are, as a society, certainly immensely predisposed to ignore creeping risks. 
there was a, a case on one of the Mediterranean islands. I can't remember now which one it was, but a whole lot of sort of propellant, high explosive, was stored right beside a power station. Lots of it, all in sort of shipping containers. And it was, there was the various reasons why it was there, but it had basically been being exported to where it was going and it was sitting there awaiting further instructions. Now, anybody who knows anything about that sort of material would tell you, get it out of the sun. <laughs> you know, um, just keep it away. It's not, um, you know, it's not, not um, sort of doesn't, doesn't need rocket scientists to tell you that uh, a lot of heat doesn't mix with a, you know, a high explosive. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, the, you know, this, this was a genuine creeping risk. And they, they left these containers, you know, big shipping containers, all full of high explosives, sitting in the sun day in, day out. And they should have known something was up because those containers were beginning to warp. Um, oh, and uh, you know it was changing. There was some, you know, there was some serious chemistry going on in there. So you know, obviously the inevitable did happen. It blew the side off the power station. Unfortunately, two people got killed in the process. I mean, thankfully it was only two people. You know, yeah. you can imagine it being a lot worse than that. Thankfully, it wasn't a nuclear power station. But you know, it's you know, the, the, these sorts of things. You can look back and say, well, of course we told you so. You know, why why would you do something so foolish? But it's you know, it's one of those situations where. If you walked into your boss and your boss could have made that decision that day, it's very easy for your boss to say, do you, do you know how busy I am? I've got a whole organisation to run. And you, it's been out there for two weeks already. It's fine. You know, it was hotter last week and it didn't go kaboom. You know, leave it alone. And, and that's, that's one of the issues that we really hit. We hit it with incompetent staff that, you know, they've, we've managed so far, you know. <laughs> Okay, well, you know, I know they've got a propensity to the bottle, but you know, <laughs> but it's it's all going to be all right, um, and one day it won't be. Uh, so you know, they, those sorts of creeping risks are, are, I think, one of the things that's very hard to deal with. You know, when do you take action? Because you probably don't want to take action on every creeping risk at every moment, because there's quite a lot of them around. Um, so you know, that judging that moment, what's that ideal time to take action is key. And so keeping in mind the ergonomic system, keeping in mind how much you need to secure your organisation, and securing it means making the best of the opportunities, because you want to have an organisation in the future unless you do, and making sure that you're dealing with the risks that you possibly have to deal with, because you know those those risks will come up to bite you eventually. And particularly creeping risks. Creeping risks are very difficult. But um, wiring the algorithmic system well and using good decision making, making sure that you're not attenuating the wrong information, that's also really, really important. Any, anything that you wanted to add from a psychological perspective there? Anything about, you know, the creeping risks and our, our um, sort of reluctance to act on something that's slow moving and gentle? You know, we, we run out of the way if there's a buffalo heading towards us. But if it's if it's a slug that's going to go and, you know, go, go and catch up with us, well, you know, come on, it's not going to get there for mm. very long. You, know, you fall asleep in the sun and suddenly the slug's on you. <laughs> I think to keep on top of like creeping risks, you just have to keep doing the regular checkups. Mm. I feel like just so you won't, it won't, yeah, it won't be left. I think, I think those, those, those regular sort of checks and regular reviews are really important. And I think that they, they've got to result in something. Mm. I mean, one of the, the issues within central government is that a regular check can result in this. I remember distinctly one sort of senior civil servant said to me, well, thank you very much for that. We've, we've raised a red flag on our risk register. Mm. And I said, oh, OK, so what, what's going to happen? Well, it's a red flag. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. But well, it's a red flag, and that that's obviously sounds really important. But you know, so who's going to review that, and what they're going to do, yeah. and you know, who's responsible for it and all that? Well, it will it will go into the system, and you know, and it will be reviewed at the appropriate time. Right. That sounds like it's been kicked into the long grass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It needs to be taken action immediately, yeah, yeah. even if it's a small thing. Because as we spoke about earlier in previous mm. podcasts, you know, chaos theory, mm. butterfly effect. Small, cha small things can cause a big. Mm. 
a big effect. Effect, and so yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, that's right. That's that's so vital. Making sure that you deal with the the, the sort of the sister the, the situation as you find it and take the appropriate course of action. And it's it's sometimes hard to know what that is because you know there are lots of competing things for attention. There are lots of issues that we need to deal with. But making sure that your company's on a sound footing, I think that's that's got to be prime number one uh, sort of issue to deal with. Making sure you're capitalising on the the opportunities and dealing with the risks, and making sure the ergonomic systems are wired properly. I think that's that's where I would where I would go first in any any organisation if we were mm. asked to sort of go and enhance it. Okay, so this is the Evolving Enterprises podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you. <laughs>